0: It's not just my food at Rice, Paper, Scissors. I mean, I've got the, the go ahead of what goes on the menu, but we're really pushing everybody in the team to, to come up with ideas and, and get involved. It's definitely not all my food. It's, it's a joint effort.
1: Today on Dirty Linen, we have a guest chef called Noah Crowcroft. Noah is overseeing the brand new event space by the rice paper scissors group called Auntie Kim's in Collingwood. I'm really excited to chat events um, and the enthusiasm for them, which I feel is really sweeping the country. Noah, welcome to Dirty Linen.
0: Thanks, Danny. Thanks for having me.
1: It's really good to have you on the show. When people ask you to introduce yourself and explain what it is you do, what do you say?
0: Well, it's a pretty, uh, pretty broad spectrum of what I do at the moment as executive chef over the Rice, Paper, Scissors group. So, um, I oversee our two Rice, Paper, Scissors stores, one in the hardware lane in the city, the other on Brunswick Street, as well as our function space that you mentioned, Auntie Kim's. So, we're very lucky that we get to play around with lots of different food in, in three different venues.
1: And for people who don't know Rice, Paper, Scissors, um, clue us in.
0: Yep. So, we do Southeast Asian um, tapas. So, our our food takes its inspiration from mainly Thailand, Vietnam, um, Malaysia. And we really just try to recreate authentic street food and make it as best we can. Um, And it's all sort of sharing style. Um, Probably the most popular thing in Rice, Paper, Scissors is our five-dish banquet. So, um, you choose five dishes and that gets shared between everybody. And that gives you a really good variety of dishes from that whole region.
1: And what's the sort of history of the restaurant? Who's behind it?
0: So uh, Rami Clues and his wife, Kim, um, they started Rice, Paper, Scissors about eight years ago with their friend Shane. Um, They started at a tiny little restaurant on Liverpool Street in the city um, and it just exploded. They were very popular, um, hour and a half waits to get in. And that just really grew from there. They, um, they then opened the one in Brunswick Street and then Hardware Lane a few years later. And um, since then, I, I came on board about four years ago as head chef at Fitzroy. And just a couple of years ago, became executive chef of the group and was given the opportunity to oversee all the food across the group, which is really exciting.
1: And tell us about Auntie Kim's. So,
0: Auntie Kim's um, kind of came about Uh, by accident necessity, Um, during lockdown, when we went into survival mode, we were doing cook-at-home boxes uh, with the Rice, paper Scissors food. And we didn't anticipate how popular it would be. And it got to the stage where we couldn't keep up with the stores that we had and we needed a bigger space to produce all these boxes. So, we started looking around, um, which was very challenging during lockdowns because – Um, you know, real estate agents weren't allowed to show us spaces and we were calling people that weren't using their kitchens and trying to rent them out. Um, We just had no luck and then uh, Rami, my boss, luckily found the space that we now have on Johnson Street in Collingwood, um, which has a lot of history in its own. Um, It was a a Greek dance hall um, about 60 years ago. Then it was the first Thai restaurant in Melbourne and um, now we're lucky enough to have it.
1: And what kinds of Like, what's the space like? What kinds of things can you do there?
0: It's very versatile. Um, So, we have a big open space with stonewashed walls and um, a beautiful theatre curtain that can be drawn down the middle of the room. So, we can split it into two spaces if we need to. And we wanted to stay true to doing Southeast Asian food, um, but we wanted it to be a little bit more elegant. And so, we've, we've kind of steered away from doing street food per se and tried to make something a bit more special.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, it's almost a year since Melbourne came out of lockdown six and I get a little stab in the heart as I <laughs> announce that anniversary. But I feel like, you know, people finally have enough confidence to book events, plan events, feel that events that they do plan are really going to happen and that and that people are going to be able to turn up Um how are you feeling the energy around events?
0: Oh, it's, it's, it's so much better than it was. I mean, there was a, a long period of time and a lot of frustration where we were, we were booking events left, right and centre. We were um, organising participation events with Melbourne Food and Wine Fest, and then, you know, we just kept going into lockdown and having to go back into doing boxes. Um, and then when we did get to a stage to where we were allowed to have a reasonable amount of people in the, in the venue – um, there was just a real lack of um, customer confidence on putting down a deposit, you know, in case the in case we went back into lockdown or half the guests weren't going to be able to show up or we were going to. Accidentally caused a super spreader event. So there was a real lack of confidence. And now that we've been out of this funk for a long time, it's just great to feel the energy in the venue every time we we do a function or a wedding. Um, it's it's just really exciting, really special to be a part of.
1: Well, you've certainly made yourself a part of it because you road tested the event with your yes, own wedding.
0: That's right. <laughs>
1: How how was that? Was that really just to make sure you had all the systems? Down?
0: <laughs> no, well my, my wife was a little bit nervous because um- you know she was worried I was going to be looking over my shoulder and and uh, you know it's it's a nightmare enough for her to go out to dinner with me where I'm just not really in the moment I'm paying attention to what's going on out around me um so she was a bit nervous about that and to boot um my best man was Malcolm Wright who's the head chef of that venue um but I think we did a pretty good job of not interfering and and we were able to have a really good time and um it it was just really special it was a really special day for everyone and I'm not I'm not saying that because it was my wedding but to, to be in the midst of it and not um, behind the curtain and cooking, um, it was really special to see just, just what a unique venue we have. I mean, there's nothing like it in Collingwood. And um, I, I mean, it's just a very unique space in Melbourne.
1: Did you do any of your own prep?
0: A little bit. Um, I, I was quite busy but I did just kind of poke in and taste a few sauces and made a, made a couple small recommendations but um, I was actually really impressed with, with how the guys are. I knew they were very nervous about um, putting the food out but they did a really good job. Everything was delicious
1: i 'd love to learn a bit more about your background as a chef, Noah, and especially you know coming into such an established brand with with legions of fans um, you know what it 's like to i suppose be a custodian but also try to put your own stamp on it um, but yeah take us take us back where are you from
0: so i um, I, I grew up in Austin, Texas, but uh, both of my parents were Australian, so they emigrated to Canada before I was born. I was born in Toronto and then um, we made our way down to Texas a few years later. So, grew up in Texas with Australian parents and made several trips over to Australia growing up. Um, I definitely didn't see myself cooking Asian food. I, I always loved eating Asian food growing up but as you can imagine in Texas, there's not a huge variety. I mean, we kind of had bad sushi places and even worse, Chinese buffets and that was kind of the 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 multitude of what we had. So um, when I came over to Australia and you know for the first time walked through Chinatown, I was just blown away, and I, I had no idea that this whole other world of food existed. Um, and I've really just been in love with it since.
1: And I mean, what about your cooking journey?
0: Yeah, so um, I I started out cooking in Austin kind of out of necessity. I Um, My father was a zoologist and a zoo director and so, I kind of grew up thinking I was going to follow in his footsteps. Um, But I cooked through high school and uni and um, when I was a teenager, my father was very sick and I kind of had to start working out of necessity to help my mom pay the bills. Um, So, I got a job at a local French cafe um, and just worked under some amazing chefs that really took me under their wing and and they knew of my circumstances at the time. And my mom and I pretty much lived off of food from that place for a good year. Um, But that that really piqued my interest and, you know, was my moment of seeing the pilot light, as they say. Um, And I just kept working in kitchens in Austin. And then once I finished high school and I wanted to take it more seriously, um, by that point, my mother had remarried. And my stepfather's nephew was a very prestigious chef in Florida. His name was Johnny Earls and he had a restaurant called Crayola's on the panhandle. Um, so, I called him for advice on what to do and, and more particularly which cooking school to go to. And his advice to me was, you don't want to be a chef. Um, you'll, it's, it's hard work. The money's not great. You'll become an alcoholic. Go to university. You don't want to be a chef. So, um, I reluctantly took his advice and I I ended up going to uni to be a herpetologist, which is studying reptiles and amphibians. And um, after I completed my degree, um, something kept ringing in my head that my father had told me when he was directing zoos that a lot of people that work with animals work with animals because they don't really like people. (laughs) And I I found that as I was going to uni, I, I didn't really... Um, relate to a lot of the people I was going to school with and while I was outside of uni, I was working in kitchens that were just so much fun and learning every day, getting to cook amazing food and um, I just fell in love with it. So, after I finished uni, I called uh, Johnny Rolls back and I said, no, I, I really want to do this. I want to be a chef. What, what should I do? And he told me not to piss my money away at cooking school and to come work at his restaurant down in Florida. So I um threw everything I owned in the back of my pickup truck and drove to Florida the next week.
1: That is a really amazing story. Um it reminds me of when my mom my mum and dad, my dad's Jewish, my mum wasn't, but to be to convert to Judaism, she had to ask the rabbis three times and they say no the first two times as a matter of course. The third time it's like fine, you really <laughs> want to join us.
0: How bad do you want this? <laughs> Yeah. It definitely felt that way. Um, But Florida was a very formative year for me. Um, So, I I, the 14-hour drive, I didn't know anybody in Florida except for Johnny Earls, who I'd never actually met. Um, I'd only spoken to him on the phone. And I didn't really time it right. And when I pulled into town, um, I felt like I was driving into a Tim Burton set. There was all these big pastel buildings by the side of the uh, beautiful Emerald Coast. I found out later that this is where they filmed The Truman Show with Jim Carrey. So, if you've seen that movie, that's that's where I did my apprenticeship. And um, it it feels like a movie set, but it's a real place. So, um, drove into this weird place at 3 in the morning, parked my car to to get some sleep by the beach. And I I was kind of thinking Johnny was going to greet me the next morning with – somewhere to stay and, and, you know, would you like a hot shower? But he asked me to meet him at the restaurant. And, um, the first thing he asked me to do, I, I walked into the kitchen, to this very professional, um, insanely clean kitchen with 15 chefs and beautifully pressed white chef jackets, the most professional kitchen I'd ever stepped into. And Johnny said, um, I need you to make everyone breakfast. So, um, I very nervously, um, destroyed breakfast for these chefs and, um, didn't, didn't really do myself any favors walking in the door of that meal. And, um, he, he was like, okay, I see where we're at and you've, you've got a bit to learn. So, um, that, that was a really incredible experience that year I had at Florida and it was just, um, kind of surreal with the amount of celebrities that would come into that restaurant. Um, celebrity chefs, we had Joel Rubichon and Emerald Lagasse come in for a feed. Um, Cheryl Crow, her family lived in that little town, so her and her family used to come in with Lance Armstrong. So it was, it was like, wow, this is this is cool. Like this is the top. This is one of the top restaurants I've ever been to, and it was really special to be a part of that. And um, just just worked with some very strong chefs. Um, I still say that my sous chef at that restaurant, he still reminds me of the little French chef from Ratatouille. And he was about five foot two, and used to just. I'm six foot four, and he used to just. Um, stand below me and get up in my face about what I was doing wrong, but equally would tell me when I was doing things that were right. And I learned a lot from there.
1: Wow. That's amazing. And was it from there that you went to Australia or is there stuff in between?
0: No. So, I, I, from there and I I decided I was going to take my cooking career seriously. um, That same French chef, uh, Philippe Robla, he had told me, because we'd had Joel Rubichon come eat at the restaurant. um, At the time, Rubichon had a restaurant in Atlanta. And he said, you know, and that that wasn't very far from where I was. And he said, you should go for that. You should apply for a job there. So, I applied for a job at Rubichon and I also applied for a job at a restaurant called Jeffrey's, which um, at the time was kind of the flagship restaurant in Austin, Texas. Um, I was offered to go do a, a trial in both restaurants um, and I, I decided to go back to Austin because I was homesick and wanted to see my family. So, didn't make it to Rubichon, unfortunately. But um, when I got back to Austin and started working at Jefferies, um, that was a family-owned restaurant that um, had a group of restaurants in Austin. And over a couple of years, I kind of worked my way up the ranks, um, starting at Jefferies as a commie chef, um, which was doing kind of french spanish texas cuisine um i then moved across the street literally across the street to their italian restaurant called chipolinas and worked as a chef de party and that's where i really fell in love with pizza making and italian food um and from there they the owners had asked me to be sous chef of their catering company which was on the grounds of the university of texas um, and the University of Texas funnily enough is the reason we moved to Austin because my father was a professor there but um i at at that catering company it was a monster i mean we had we had two cafes, kind of six kiosks around the campus um, and we would do all kinds of uh, cool catering events um but after spending a couple of years there, it became clear to me that if I was going to really progress as a chef, I needed to get out of Austin because at, at that time, um, the food scene wasn't as strong as it is now. Um, and also at the time, my I was very close with my grandmother and she was getting on a bit. So um, I decided as I've got Australian citizenship, maybe I'll go out to Australia and work out there for a year.
1: And what's it like when you go back to Austin now, Noah? What, is it, what does Texas feel like to you?
0: It's so different. Um, I, I actually just went home in January and to be honest with you, this is probably the first time I went home where I didn't feel like it felt like home. Um, it's, it's always felt like a, hope, a homecoming when I've gone back. But every time I go back, you know, less of my friends are still there and the skyline has changed and the city's just exploded. It's one of the fastest growing cities in the States. Um, It used to be about a million, I think it's about two and a half now. So, um, it is very different and I love going back, but I also think we're extremely lucky um, to be in Melbourne. Melbourne's just an incredible city and I can't imagine leaving here now.
1: So, you came over here to spend some time with your grandma. What, What happened on a work front?
0: So, my grandmother was living in Harvey Bay in Queensland and... Uh my, my two things coming out were I want to be close to my grandmother and I want to be near the Great Barrier Reef. Um, I'd flown over the reef when I was a child and just remember being mesmerized by looking at the coral out at the, at the plane window. So, I started applying to various resorts um, along the Great Barrier Reef, had a few interviews, one of which was on Hamilton Islands. And um, everyone in my family that I was staying with at that time had said, "Oh, you got to go to Hamilton Island. That's the place to go." Um, so from Harvey Bay, went over to Hamilton Islands, and was working as a banquet chef at the convention center there. And um, it it is just a real magical place, Hamilton Island. If you haven't been there, it's just insanely beautiful. And every day you walk to work, um, it's just you're kind of pinching yourself, like is this place real? Um, so I, I stayed on Hamilton Island for for a couple of years, and while working at that um, convention center, was very lucky to to be a part of some big um, big functions where we had uh, Matt Moran come in and and cook his food with us, as well as um, Curtis Stone came over when Oprah came to Australia, and we we cooked for Oprah with Curtis Stone's menu and set up a full uh, buffet on Whitehaven Beach, was which was a pretty incredible feat. Um, and yeah, just really enjo- enjoyed my time in paradise. But while on Hamilton Island, everybody kept telling me, if you're serious about cooking, you need to go to Melbourne. Melbourne's the, the food capital of Australia.
1: Um, I mean, I've heard spoken to people about you know resort life and you know, as much as the place is very beautiful and it sounds like you had some really special experiences, it's also pretty intense, a bit of a grind. And I guess there's less of that connection with produce.
0: Yes. Yeah. It, it is a little bit of a bubble. Um, I will say that working there really um, taught me to be organized and taught me a lot about logistics because we used to just get one barge shipment a week. So it was, you know, if you missed something on your ordering, it wasn't like you could nick down to the shops and get what you forgot. Um, you had to pay to put it on a plane or you had to improvise and figure something else out. So that was quite interesting. Um, but yeah, that, that was probably one of the only negatives was not really having that connection with, with farmers like I do now, where I can actually talk to growers, talk to producers. Um, you were kind of, you were depending on a barge shipment once a week, which wasn't, wasn't ideal.
1: Mm. So you finally make it to this food capital, um, that you've been told so much about. What do you do?
0: Well, I aim straight for the top. And at the, at the time, um, George Columbaris Press Club was, kind of at its heyday and, and in the spotlight. And so, I applied for a job at Press Club. Um, I got an interview a few days later. Um, but when I sat down for my interview, I was very quickly told that, well, actually, you're applying for a job at our sister restaurant, Maha, which at the time was um, still part of my establishment. Um, so, you know, they gave me a bit of a rundown about Maha, which had only been open for, I think, about six months at the time and had just got its first hat. And... Um, they asked me to go do a trial there and I said, I'll go check it out, um, not really knowing what to expect and was greeted at the door by Shane D'Elia and walked down into this basement kitchen and um, the guys in that kitchen, we j- I just gelled with immediately. It was like we'd all known each other for 20 years and just, just got on famously, um, not just cooking really good food, but just having a lot of fun. But it, it was very challenging because I, it was all Middle Eastern food, which I'd never cooked before. And also, everybody was calling out Middle Eastern food in a very thick Aussie accent, which really <laughs> threw me off. So, it was like, yeah, three minutes, one machine." I'm like, what is that? I don't, I don't know. Um, but, but, but I got there eventually and I worked there as a chef de party on the fish section for, for a year and um, made some really good friends. And that's where I met my friend Malcolm Wright, who's now – head chef at Auntie Kim's.
1: Okay. Yeah. So, did you move from there to Rice, Paper, Scissors?
0: No, not quite. So, I uh, – while working at Maha, the front of house manager at the time, Alicia McClay, was one of the best front of house managers I've ever worked with. Um, her husband at the time, John McClay, was executive chef at uh, Red Spice Road, which had also not been open for very long. Um, and uh, for those who haven't been there, it was a, a monster Southeast Asian restaurant, 220 seats – Um, You know, on a Friday, Saturday, we do close to a thousand covers, very busy, big kitchen, 15 chefs on the brigade. Um, And they were looking, I I was kind of looking for my next opportunity. And after I'd put in my resignation, Alicia said, hey, you know, they're looking for a head chef at Red Spice. I think you should go for it. Um, So, she put me in touch with her husband. I went and had an interview, trialed that night. And, um, they, they were basically, you know, I I was very honest that I didn't know anything about Thai food or Vietnamese food or any of the food that we were cooking. And, um, I don't know, they, they liked something about me and gave me the job. So, um, I, I stuck it out at Ritz Spice Road for about three and a half years. And in that time, I just ate as much Southeast Asian food as I could, read as many books as I could, um, made a few trips over to Thailand uh, at the time, my older brother, Paul, was living in um, Kuala Lumpur. So, that helped as well that I went up and saw him a few times and just ate my way around the city. So, I just really tried to immerse myself in the food and I, I just fell in love with it. Like, the first time I went to Bangkok, I, I just thought, what a special place. And um, I, I can't really see myself cooking anything else now.
1: Ah, oh, that's so interesting. It must have been, I mean, it is such a machine, that restaurant. You were at the at the first site, right? Um before they moved to, to Queen Street, and certainly we um, had a few tales to tell about Red Spice Road over the past two years when they closed and somehow reemerged. Um, Yeah, very interesting times. Um, so, uh, yeah, so what happened next?
0: So, yeah. Um- after Red Spice Road, I was—I um, have to be careful here too because I still confuse Red Spice Road and Rice Paper Scissors. Very easy to to mix those two up. But after Red Spice Road, um, I was looking for my next opportunity. I, I did have my own cafe for a couple of years. Um, I was quite hungry to have my own business, and um, in hindsight, not really sure why I thought uh, opening a cafe was the the best way to go, but. Um, after a few years, ended up selling out of that and then was really missing Southeast Asian food. And um, I ended up working at Shannon Bennett's Jardin Tan at um, the Botanical Gardens. Um, and that was a lot of fun because it was it was a little bit more diverse than that it was French-Vietnamese. So, you could kind of bend the rules a little bit on what what you were plating. Um, but not only that, because we we're at the Botanical Gardens, we had our own vegetable garden out the back with our own assigned gardener. Um, So, that was great, just having that relationship with a gardener on premises to – and she was basically like, oh, I can grow whatever you want to grow. Um, But we never paid for herbs. We would just go out every morning and and pick and wash the herbs that we needed for the day Um, and growing our own wombok and our own chilies and the bar was growing um, yuzu and calamansi to put into their cocktails and that was really special.
1: Oh, that sounds so good. Mm. And did you do some of the catering out of Jardin Tan as well?
0: Yeah, yes. Yeah. So we had some pretty special events there as well because that, that space opens up for for a couple hundred people. Um, and it was a very weather-dependent venue. I mean, obviously, when it's raining out, not many people are going to the gardens, but um, great, great events at Jardin Tan, um, people from all over the world booking events in that space. And so, I mean, it's... It was interesting in that it was Jordan Tan, but it was also a part of VU events. So there was a little bit of crossover there. So we got to play around with quite a bit of food.
1: It's really interesting how events have just been threaded through so many different parts of your career. No?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've, you know, when, when I was a young chef, I was kind of told you need to kind of decide which way you're going to go if you're going to be doing a la carte or banquet, because a lot of chefs stick to one or the other for their whole career. And I, I really couldn't make up my mind and I wasn't really prepared to, to make that call early on because I really enjoyed both of them. Um, they were both very satisfying and rewarding. And you got to touch people's lives and food with, with you know, different means. So, um, Jordan Tan was really good for that. But uh, while I was there, I, I had kept hearing about uh, Rice Paper Scissors. I hadn't dined there before, but everyone was talking about it there was this huge word of mouth um buzz going on about them and they they were um advertising for a head chef at Fitzroy and um the the ad was written really well and sounded really good so i thought i'm just going to give these guys a call and have a chat and they rather than going in for a chat they asked me to come in for dinner and um i met with with Shane and Rami and they they were just <laughs> So casual and unpretentious and you, you walked into the restaurant and it, there was just this buzz about the place. You know, there's, there's a disco light going on, all the staff are wearing Hawaiian shirts and the food was really good. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't over the top. You know, these guys weren't chasing chef hats. It was just good Southeast Asian street food um, and I liked it straight away. So made the decision to come on board with them at Fitzroy, and I've just been trying to throw in my two cents ever since and and make the improvements that I can
1: so yeah, I mean, what's it like coming into a business that does have such a buzz about it?
0: It's interesting because you you know I, I mean every chef we're all, we're all precious creatures and wanna um you know put our spin on things and and say that's my food, but it's what I love about Rice, Paper, Scissors still to this day is the um, just how inclusive it is. Um, it's never about, you know, when I was a young chef, there was lots of restaurants I worked in that, um, you know, if you wanted to have a little bit of creative freedom, it was like, you know, you're here to peel onions or, or peel prawns and that's what you're here to do. Just shut up. Um, and Rice, Paper, Scissors is very different in that we're, we're pushing our young apprentices and commie chefs to come up with ideas and to get involved with putting specials on and, um, you know, it's not, it's not just my food at Rice, Maple, Scissors. I mean, I've got the, the go ahead at what goes on the menu, but we're really pushing everybody in the team to, to come up with ideas and, and get involved. Um, so, you know, I, I guess I'm probably really good at quality control and, and making sure that, um, we're progressing and that we're, we're evolving, but, um, it's definitely not all my food. It's, it's a joint effort.
1: Hmm. And I mean, you you mentioned you just, you know, fell in love with South, Southeast Asian flavors, but it's not a a cuisine that's, you know, part of your heritage. What sort of conversations do you have at Rice, Paper Scissors about that whole, you know, concept of authenticity and and who cooks what food?
0: Well, we're very lucky that we have a lot of chefs um, from that part of the world. We've got, we've got a few chefs from Thailand, Vietnam, Indonesia, Philippines, um, and, you know, some of them have brought their their flavors of home along for the trip and we really encourage them to, you know, call. <laughs> I, I remember one of the chefs was talking about, oh, you know, my, my grandpa used to make this this boko, this Vietnamese dish. And I'm like, call him, like get the recipe. Let's <laughs> let's make it. Let's try it. And, um, you know, that kind of thing. So, those are the conversations we have and we're always pushing each other to to go out and eat more and travel more. Um, one thing I'm really excited about with lockdowns being done, is is overseas travel again? Because that was a huge way that I got my inspiration beforehand. Um, and actually, me and the the owner Rami and a chef and venue manager, we went to Vietnam just before we went into the first lockdown. We were actually worried we were going to get stuck over there. Um, but we're we're all about taking work trips overseas, where we're just going over there to eat as much as we can and and get ideas and look at what what would work back here in Melbourne. Um, I was very lucky that my wife and I just had our our honeymoon in Indonesia. So, um, that's the first time in three and a bit years that I've got to go to Southeast Asia and and be amongst it and talk to people and smell things and taste things. And um, I'm really excited to do that again
1: yeah fantastic um so noah what are you what sort of trends are you seeing in terms of events like what kinds of foods do people think that they you know they must have what's the sort of format um yeah what's what sort of vibe is there
0: um well I think one thing that that's special about southeast A- Sa- excuse me Southeast Asian cuisine and what we do at Auntie Kim's is um the share style and having food in the middle of the table so that you know, people are reaching over each other and having conversations while they eat and um, really having a bit of a bonding experience. But I guess, you know, everyone knows here in Melbourne that weddings are lined up until, um, uh, you know, 2024 at a lot of places. Um, so, we're definitely starting to see more weddings come through, which is great. Um, but, we're we, you know, we're also pushing for, for any corporate events as well. Um, as far as trends that come in, I mean, I think one thing that I see a lot of is people wanting those more kind of wow style dishes where we're putting a whole suckling pig on the table or whole roasted fish. And, you know, those, those big dishes that come out where everybody stops talking and looks at what's going on.
1: Mm, I love that. Well, it's so great to have you on Dirty Linen. Thank you for coming along for a chat and sharing with us today, Noah, and yeah, see you for some great parties. Yes,
0: thanks, Danny, thanks for having me.
1: This is Dirty Linen, and I'm Danny Valant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives.